As the owner and founding father of TR Historical, Dave Boussier took what he learned in a previous long career in retail and combined it with what he loved, history, to create his own family-owned small business, a one-stop shop for people who love the past. The products TR Historical sells are aimed to help people express their enthusiasm for subjects just like fans of sports teams, brands, activities, or destinations typically do. TR Historical offers items from many different subjects and time periods worldwide. Ancient history, American Revolution, the World Wars, the Civil War, science, and art history. They typically only feature the deceased, allowing a place that is typically comfortable and safe for shoppers despite different politics of the day. Their hope is to make history fresh and more engaging while supporting fans of the subject. They support sites and opportunities, when available, that bring history to people in an engaging way. And right now, you can go to trhistorical.com and use the promo code TATTOO to get 10% off your order. That's T-A-T-T-O-O. Use that code at checkout to get 10% off. You'll be supporting a small business during these trying times and obtaining some new history swag for your home, closet, or office space. Go check out trhistorical.com today. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattoo Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian. It's great to be on here for another episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for everyone who has reached out and said how much the podcast means to you or given me some great feedback, rated the podcast, shared it out. The support just means so much to me. And in the previous weeks, I've brought you ideas of branding on different sites and engaging a new audience. This week, I want to revert back to one interview that we just composed uh, on, in the end of January, actually. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, it was the interview in the live stream that we did with a power panel of Civil War historians when we talked about the Winter's War, Civil War soldiers during the winter months on campaign, possibly in a stagnant camp. Uh, it was a great discussion. And this power panel was Dr. James Brumall, Professor Jonathan Noyalis, Dr. Joseph Rizzo, and Dr. Lauren K. Thompson. And uh, I basically helped moderate, and it was a great time. There's some awesome information there. And I wanted to bring this to you because I love to showcase the live streams, but then once in a while when we have a really killer one, I love to pull the audio from it and give you a podcast to listen to from our interaction online. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here's some information on what Civil War soldiers did during the winter months with this great panel of historians. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this evening's live stream presentation here on the Tattooed Historian Facebook page and YouTube channel. 
My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian, and it's great to be back on here for another great live stream this evening. This evening's presentation is called The Winter's War, Civil War Soldiers in Camp and on Campaign During Cold Months. It's definitely cold out there right now, and this is fitting that we do this because I am freezing right now. <laughs> so uh, I, I want to thank our co-hosts, first of all, uh, the Loudon Museum. I also want to thank Civil War Trails, Inc., and the George Tyler Moore Center for the Study of the Civil War. And speaking of the center, the first person I'm going to introduce tonight, Dr. James Brumall, the director of the center. Jim, how are you? I'm well, John. I, uh, I'm likewise very cold. I'm in a basement, and um, it's, it's a bit nippy down here. Not quite 25 degrees like it is outside, but um, I'd put it at maybe 35. So. Oh, okay. That's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> We've been colder. <laughs> so for this evening's presentation, we have a power panel of Civil War historians. And I'm going to ask Jim to introduce everyone and go around the horn here so everyone gets their fair share of introductions. So, Jim, you can go ahead whenever you're ready. For sure. Um, well, thank you, John. I appreciate it. I don't think we've done anything together in at least a couple months. And so it's nice be back together. And um, as John said, uh, thank you to the um, different organizations that have helped spread the word. We're quite excited about the program. And I'm actually going to start with my colleague and friend, Joe Rizzo, because I'm looking at his fire and I'm just so enamored. By <laughs> I know you're in the basement. I've got a, a, a fire back here. It's I, I know. Yeah, it's quite miserable down here. <laughs> um, so, uh, I'll keep these introductions relatively short. Um, as, as, as John said, everyone is, is, is quite... Um, quite esteemed, but um, I'm gonna keep it short for the sake of, of brevity and to get to the program. Um, but Dr. Uh, Joseph Rizzo is the executive director of the Lauda Museum. He recently conceived, wrote, designed, and installed the peer-reviewed exhibit Caught in the Maelstrom of Civil War, Lauda and Cali Divided. Um, he is uh, responsible for quite a bit at the Lauda Museum, and he oversees all operations, including social media, interpretation, fundraising and programming. And, uh, you know, I'd encourage you to, of course, visit Leesburg and check out the Lotta Museum. And uh, Joe is part of a group, Historians on Tap, that are virtual currently, um, but uh, throughout a normal year and even a bit in the fall, they uh, go to local breweries in Loudoun County and beyond. And they're um, he, Anne-Marie, and uh, Travis hold some really good programs, and so check that out as well. Uh, at least on my screen, um, above Joe, <laughs> is Dr. Lauren Thompson. And uh, Lauren, I've been you for quite a while as well, is that correct? Yeah, going all the way back to Southern Historical Association meetings and um, things of the like. Um, but Lauren is an Assistant Professor of History and Director of Ethnic and Gender Studies at McKendree University. She is the author, most recently, of Friendly Enemies, Soldier Fraternization Throughout the American Civil War. And uh, I have temporarily misplaced my copy, but Jonathan, there it is. Okay. There you go. <laughs> this, this is a fascinating study. Um, it's it's uh, the, the first of its life. Um, many people have commented upon these informal interactions uh, between soldiers, but they had really never read about it. And so Lauren's study is quite really groundbreaking. And um, I had the pleasure of reading it quite recently and reviewing it. And um, please, I would encourage all of you, it'll interface directly with tonight's topic and it's an excellent uh, study. 
She has also published in Civil War History and the edited volume, A Forgotten Front, Florida During the Civil War. And of course, I spent eight years of my life in Florida. And no, it is indeed forgotten. Um, to my bottom uh, is Professor Jonathan Wallace. And I've known Jonathan again for at least half a decade now. Um, he's just down the road at Shenandoah University, and we've been partners on a number of different programs, which has been quite exciting. And he is indeed the director of Shenandoah University's McCormick Civil War Institute. And he is the director, sorry, the editor of the Journal of the Shenandoah Valley during the Civil War. He has published quite extensively both books and articles, but most recently, and I gifted this to my father, I think it was here this Christmas or maybe the past one, uh, Civil War Legacy in the Shenandoah, Remembrance, Reunion, and Reconciliation. And he has a forthcoming book, a forthcoming book uh, through the University of Florida Press. And so we're quite excited to see that that's going to discuss the experience of enslaved and free African-Americans in the Shenandoah Valley. And so um, again, for those of you who have not been over to Shenandoah University, and the Winchester area, I would encourage you to see Jonathan. Uh, they have a robust series of programs, both in person, during normal times, and currently online. And so thank you all very much uh, for coming this evening. And to my audience, uh, thank you all for tuning in. So we're quite excited. That's great. You doing okay there, John? Got we are we are rocking and rolling. We are we are doing awesome. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for the introductions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let me just make a kind of broad statement and then we can either, if you want to start, John, or I will. You know, I came to this topic, uh, I was I was asked to do a presentation during during Christmas and, and theme it around the, the Christmas time, and I, I sort of panicked. And um, But the more I dug into it, the more I realized that there's a very different face of the American Civil War during the winter months, both for civilian and soldiers. And then again, as I said, I had the opportunity to read Lauren's book fairly recently, and it got me thinking sort of about just this entirely different sector of, of, of conflict and, and how the interactions both um, among comrades in arms, between soldiers and civilians, between, say, November and, and, and March is, is just entirely unique. And so I thought it'd be worthwhile to sort of explore this. Um, all of my panelists have read pretty extensively, both in the primaries and secondaries in these arenas. and and so. Um, I think that you know this is going to be a rather unique take on um, on the Civil War, something that people probably don't think a lot about, but yet was extraordinarily common to the experiences of soldiers and civilians in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something that right that we we often don't cover uh, extensively because when we hear the term the Civil War, we go immediately to tactics, battles, sometimes personalities. That kind of thing. And then you hear about the non-campaigning months or it's it's not campaign season. And then everyone kind of glazes over and they're like, okay, well, we'll get we'll get back to the good stuff later. It's like a lot of good stuff happens in winter camps and 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 thinking about how life can change and uh, uh, logistics and things like that, which is I I believe why this is a great panel tonight because we're gonna be able to shed some light on uh, living conditions and fraternization and and all kinds of key components that are often uh, just glossed over by some historians, not all, obviously, because we have a whole panel here who don't. Uh, but we sometimes fall into that trap, right, where it's like it's battles, tactics, personalities, and we 
and some politics antebellum and civil war wise uh civil war period wise and that's about it so i am really interested in this subject because uh uh everyone here has probably been to an open air museum or a living history museum and you've seen some of the huts and things like that and that's about all we usually talk about so i think that it's really important for us to have this conversation tonight since we are in the middle of a winter month and uh thinking about what would have been occurring at this time uh so many years ago and how they would have survived so uh i i think that you know it'd be really interesting to start with uh this whole idea of just being a part of a, a, the U.S. Army, the Confederate Army at this time of the year, what would life have been like for soldiers at this time uh, as far as living conditions, what they would have experienced and things like that? Anyone can take any route they wish to. This is organic. We can just roll. Everyone's so polite. Lauren, why don't you, why don't you kick it off for us and then we'll, we'll go. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, I really think that winter is the time when our soldiers that we study actually process. Um, I feel like men had a very hard time living in the present and it was thinking of the past, particularly kind of the bloodshed um, they experienced and then also kind of living in the future, right? Thinking of what sacrifices are yet to be made. Um, and specifically for two of the campaigns in Virginia that I study, um, the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac in the winter of 1863, and then two years later in the winter of 1865, um, very different circumstances, very different tactics. And of course, you know, those are the kind of things that um, we can get to later. But what um, George Rabel really writes about is that feeling the effects of the Battle of Fredericksburg um, really, you know, don't hit these men until mid-February because of, you know, the immediate kind of anxieties of the campaign and kind of the triaging of the wounds. And then all of a sudden, after Burnside's mud march, do we see men become very ill? And then do we see men, you know, dying of infections? And so a lot of times we kind of look at the immediate aftermath of the battle, but when we have this kind of long winter of 1863 to process what just happened, um, both the victor and the vanquished at Fredericksburg are kind of thinking of, you know, what future sacrifices have to be made, um, dealing with mental trauma, obviously physical trauma, all while kind of encamped in the same place that the battle happened um, as a visual and physical reminder of what took place. And so um, that's kind of for Fredericksburg. And then later when these armies meet two years later in 65, thinking of how they are position, positioned in sieges, right, or in these trenches around Petersburg. Um, again, we know in hindsight that, yeah, in three months, the war will be over. Just hold on, guys, you know, but they have a very different stance on it. So I feel like winter is a time when there's a lot of downtime, a lot of time to think, and a lot of time to process about what just happened and what is to happen that obviously coupled with the nostalgia of Christmas and wanting to be home with the family um, is one of the hardest times for our men. And because we gloss over this time to get 
to the campaign. And I do it all the time when I teach. I'm like, okay, so there's Chattanooga. Now let's go to the Overland campaign, right? And I skip over five months. Um, and that was five months for these men to um, digest what just happened. And, and so I think in terms of maybe not the physical living conditions, but the emotional state of our men, um, it might be some of the hardest times that they experienced during the war. Hmm. Yeah, and and to add to that, um, kind of looking at it from the, from the physical perspective, um, Robert Bradbury, he was a corporal in Battery D, 1st Pennsylvania Light Artillery, and he wrote a letter from Harper's Ferry in January of 1865, where he basically said, you know, all throughout the winter months, we really only do three things. We haul wood, we cut wood, and we burn wood. Um, and, and, and to me, what has always been um, just, just amazing and mind-boggling, you know, we see those images of, of these blighted landscapes and, and they come as a result of, of what these armies are doing in the wintertime. Um, you know, I think about, you know, my, my scholarship focuses primarily on the Shenandoah Valley. And I think about the army of the Shenandoah in, you know, the winter of 64, 65. So Phil Sheridan's army, um, after he had pretty much eliminated any real significant threat from Jubal Early's army um, after Cedar Creek, you know, he starts slowly pulling his army north from Middletown toward Winchester. And when the army of the Shenandoah sets up, you know, camp, it's called Camp Russell, which is basically this, this almost four mile front um, on the southern outskirts of Winchester. I mean, they just decimate the landscape. Um, I mean, they are tearing buildings down. There's a, an African-American church in, in what is today Stephen City, Virginia, that was torn down by federal soldiers. Um, there are families who are who are essentially, you know, ruined as a result of this. I think about um, the Pritchard Farm. So if any of the viewers have ever been to the Kernstown battlefield, um, that 350-acre property was every last fence rail, every last tree on that property was cut down. Uh, everything that they had, you know, the armies took, and and this put an enormous financial burden on those families. So it's it's you know it's very complex and I agree with Lauren and Jim, it's kind of sad that as historians, maybe we, we don't talk about this enough with our students in class because it's not just the pressure of the soldiers processing everything that they're going through. It's the impact on the landscape. And then there's the emotional impact of the civilians who are suffering, you know, from, from things being removed or taken away from the landscape. And let me, pause for a minute and Joe, I, I hope I didn't interrupt you, but, uh, you know, going back to, to Lauren and then Jonathan elaborate upon this, you know, I think the most compelling letters that you generally find from Civil War soldiers are written in the aftermath of battles, certainly, because in many instances, they're trying to process the loss, but they're also on the move. In, in, in many cases, um, I study primarily the Eastern Theater, you know, Lee's spending several weeks after even a, a catastrophic campaign on, on the move before he finally settles down. But some of the more melancholy and introspective correspondence or diary entries always occur during the winter. And I, and I, and I want to really highlight Lauren's point is that they have the routine of, of drill. And as Jonathan said, you know, just the, the monotonous daily duties um, to, to, to maintain roads and, and to simply keep warm by, by cutting down trees. But they have an inordinate amount of time that's not available during the campaign season where often soldiers are literally on their feet eight plus hours a day. And so at these periods, I think we see some of the, the, the hardest strains 
the, the most difficult sort of emotional fatigue occurs as they're stuck in, in, in quite tight quarters. Um, you know, Joe's fire is, is, is pretty, but um, you know, if, if you were in a eight by 12 space and, and relying entirely upon that for your heat, it doesn't become so pretty because you're also cooking on it. And then the space itself becomes quite smoky. And, you know, going outside isn't necessarily a good prospect either because, you know, some, some of these winters, especially in 62, 63, they had pretty significant snowfalls. And, and, and so, you know, this is a moment where I think soldiers really do sort of grapple with the experience of war while being very close to it. The post-war memoirs, memory starts to come in. Um, they tend to gloss over in some instances of some of the more horrors of the combat. But I just really wanted to highlight that point because I think it's it's just so important and it's so revealing when you do read a letter collection like Far, Far From Home with Dick and Tally Simpson, their their, their winter stuff is always the, mo always the most difficult, always the most melancholy, always when they feel the most disconnected from their comrades in arms, who they generally feel very close to during the campaign season. Um, but anyway, Joe, I, I think I interrupted you. I apologize. No, I, mean, I think you make a good point. And I think when you look at some of the winter letters, uh, it gives them much more. Obviously, um, boredom is one of the probably the most obvious things that comes up. And they're very descriptive of the types of cabins that they're building, where they're getting the materials for that. Um, but also, I, I think of uh, William Berkeley in 8th Virginia. Uh, I've read through you know, his wartime correspondence with his wife. And it's at that time too, it's almost like a reset where then he takes more of an active role in trying to manage the household as well from afar. And for him, who's a more affluent individual, I mean, he's got enslaved servants coming back and forth that come up within his letters, particularly in the winter. Uh, but for him, I mean, he's writing about the boredom of it and he's a very measured person. You don't see him get very dramatic. Uh, I mean, really what Lauren was saying with Fredericksburg, uh, that's really the most vivid time in terms of how he writes about battle was just after the Battle of Fredericksburg. Uh, also really the only times that he mentions much of Union soldiers even, uh, with fraternization, you know, being just a couple hundred yards apart, was that winter. Uh, but beyond that, so much, much of it is him trying to feel like he's still a part of his own home and very much concerned with his wife in Southern Loudoun, uh, especially as, you know, throughout four different winters, uh, the news changes frequently about army occupation throughout the county. And yeah, I think it's really, see that much more than in the summer where it's a more preoccupied movement for him, probably because you are, you're, you're much more immobilized and much more concerned about your own home front then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. John, yeah. can I ask you to bring up, um, since everyone has touched upon it, I want to sort of mm -hmm. um, focus this discussion a bit. Can you bring up the PowerPoint? <laughs> I yeah. won't go at length with the PowerPoint people. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't panic. Which, which slide would you like? So, um, let me see here. The, uh, uh, well, I want to juxtapose. And so, um, start, can you start with, I'll, I'll be quick, I promise. This is like, it's fine. It's fine. can you start with slide number nine? Yes. Okay. Okay. Give me one second here. I'll bring, it I'll bring that up for you. Yeah, that'd be quick. But what yeah. I want to hear, John's doing this, is everyone has, has talked about in sort of broad terms, winter quarters, and then Jonathan painted this really eloquent picture of the deforestation. I think it is, is, is useful to pause here for a minute. And, you know, in the summer months, soldiers are either living under the sky, under the stars, or in these canvas cities. If they stop for long enough periods of time, and this is um, a pretty famous image that Conrad Chapman did, who is a soldier artist, and he painted pretty extensively in the post-war period. Can you go to the next one? Please? Yes. Thank you so much. 
And then you see some sense of the lithograph of um, on the top there of a, a union encampment, the, the steady um, solid rows of, of, of tents, again, the Canvas City, a, an actual wartime image of it pictured below, and then keep advancing, John. And then you have this scene. And if you look at all three images, you can get some sense of what Jonathan just talked about. There is just an immense amount of deforestation. And here I'm going to rely upon Megan K. Nelson's research. And Megan estimates that in order to maintain one campfire over the course of one year's time, it requires roughly 10 acres mm. of trees. And then you multiply that by every winter quarter, every soldier's campfire, and you can get some sense of just the inordinate amount of firewood that's required to simply maintain um, body warmth and to cook food. But then if you look at these images, you can see wooden stockades, corduroy roads, winter quarters. Um, They're constructed of, of uh, felled trees. And um, you can just get some sense now of just, you know, the, the, dev the literal environmental devastation that these armies um, bring to wherever they go. And then the huts themselves are illustrative of, while yes, cozy, and soldiers often talk about that, these are pretty cramped, confined spaces, often measuring between, say, 8 by 10, 10 by 12, and in them would be anywhere between four and eight men um, who are probably messmates. But you can get some sense of just how circumscribed their worlds become in the winter months, thereby propelling what Lauren had, had talked about, this deep introspection. You're, you're quite literally stuck by yourself and with your immediate friends, and you have nothing to do but think. And you can expel, John, but I just wanted to at least illustrate that since it had been discussed more um, broadly. Sure. I, I think a great point to, a uh, great question to ask here, when we look at those huts and we see the conditions that these men are, are placed upon or placed in uh, was something that I thought of, but Sharon Burtz also thought of it. Uh, what about disease and influenza during the winter months? Because you're in these cramped conditions and it's cold and you're wet and all this. What, what impact does disease have upon the men who already have probably low morale? And now you're going to, they're, they're, as Lauren said, they're calculating what they just went through, especially in January of 63, February of 63, uh, what they just went through like Fredericksburg. And now you're getting the opportunity to have disease troops now. Uh, what was that like upon these armies at that time? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll chime in here, you know, from the perspective of, of the, of the winter of, you know, 62, 63. So right when Robert Milroy's division uh, came to Winchester in January of 63, there was a, a major smallpox outbreak um, in his army. I mean, the 110th Ohio comes readily to mind. Um, it was, I mean, you're, I mean, we're, you know, we've lived, we live in a, a quarantine world right now because of COVID. I mean, you're, you're trying to quarantine an entire regiment. Um, so obviously that's, that's mentally taxing, but then the other issue that these, you know, commanders have to confront is you have, you know, significant chunks of your army are, are ill, but you still have in a place like Winchester, you still have threat of, of Confederate incursions. It's not that, you know, the armies are going and bedding down for the winter. And this is still a very much an active theater uh, during that time. So it's, it's, it's placing obvious, you know, physical stresses on the soldiers um, when you're taking almost entire regiments um, out of fighting readiness. And then the commanders are trying to figure out what to do. I mean, it's just a, 
an unfathomable situation. And oh, sorry, Lauren. Did you? Oh, I was just going to say, and also, um, when armies are on the move, um, I guess you could say it's easier to make sure that you find a place where men are going to use the latrine um, away from the water supply, but during these long winter encampments, constantly trying to find places where um, the ground will get oversaturated um, to have, you know, the mixing of what you're trying to drink and where you're trying, you know, to relieve yourself. Um, and so one of the, I guess, the better things about winter is there's, you know, the livestock isn't always there, but then that always brings up, you know, men can't forage, men can't live off the land. Um, so it's kind of a, you know, a lose-lose situation. Um, but I just thought of that, like, you know, when men are camped for five months at a time in the winter of 64, 65, right? Um, you have to be very careful about mixing that because that's how the collar on the dysentery can, you know, you know, ravage these men. And, you know, I'll say, it, and Jonathan highlights a, a really nice specific case and, and Lauren speaks more broadly. I mean, during the winter months, the army's do suffer from high rates of disease in, in the winter of 63, the AOP, Army of the Potomac has large numbers of men who are out. But I think it's also important to realize, and, and you know, Katie Meyer highlights this really well in her book, Nature Civil War, they have developed notions of, of, of medicine and self-care. And, and so soldiers are conscientious, they're lazy, they can, oh, that's not the right word, but they can be, it's not their fault, um, they can be lazy. And, and, and so there are things like fouling of water systems, but you know the camps are laid out in such a way as to promote a healthful climate. Um, soldiers are aware that um, when you know they're in low low line areas, they're swampy, that there's a higher rate of things like malaria. Whereas when they're in the salubrious air of the the Shenandoah Valley or even in the mountains, they realize that um, rates of disease are quite lower, and and they do a number of things to try to. Um, uh, you know, stave off any sort of disease, but nonetheless, I, I think we see a lot of these really significant health issues coming during the winter months, just simply because it is so, the conditions can get quite dirty, um, the, the wire can get fouled, and and immune systems are simply weakened. You know, they're, they're not necessarily making the caloric intake that they need or the types of calories that they're consuming aren't the right ones. Um, these are high fat, high carbohydrate diets. They're not they're not moving like they do during the campaign season, and 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 so it, it can truly decimate um, armies, which which creates some real catastrophic issues for commanders to worry about. Yeah. One thing is too that in the winter camps, the the camp cooks get to work overtime because you really see that instead of the small messes like you see on campaign with five or six people coming together with their ration issue for campaign rations. You're getting this influx of whatever uh, foodstuffs they can get, and then they're they're basically going on a larger scale of cooking and preparing and and uh, things of that nature. Where uh, if if you know who's the best cook and around, you're going to get them to cook for you in winter camp because you know you're not going to get fouled beef or anything like that going on. That doesn't mean you're not going to have those issues with disease because you're definitely going to still have the dysentery and things like that. But it really helped morale wise to actually have a good meal once in a while instead of just stuffing it into your haversack and letting it turn a color you don't want it to turn and then having to eat it um 
but that also goes back to morale, right? It goes back to this issue of, uh, you know, are you in a, a hut with someone who's infested with lice? And now everyone's going to have that issue and it's worse than on campaign. Are you going to get proper food stuffs? Uh, is it prepared properly? Uh, and things like that. Uh, I, I'm thinking also about the issue of desertion because we, we talked about these men are calculating what they went through, especially after Fredericksburg and other winter campaigns, like after Franklin, things like that's going on. These men are calculating what they have gone through. They're hearing from home about hard, hard times at home, especially during the winter months. They're thinking of the holiday season. You know, they think of it differently than we do. Obviously we've commercialized it, but they're still thinking of the holidays. Uh, what about uh, Barbara Schultz brought this up and it kind of leads into my question as well. She brought up, would more furloughs be granted in winter? or weren't furloughs granted? And that leads to my question of desertion as well. Uh, do we see a heightened desertion of men who maybe couldn't get furloughs? And they're just like, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna exit and I'm just gonna leave. And if I get caught, I get caught. Or is this kind of a, a parallel course with post campaign? Because we see it, especially after Gettysburg, we see a large influx of men leave the army, or not, not a large amount, but men leave the army of the Northern Virginia because of what happened in Gettysburg. Is it parallel with that, or do we see more of that in the wintertime? Anybody? Well, I, I know, and then I think, Joe, you're back. I know in the winter of 1863, um, the Army of the Potomac has some severe issues with desertion. Um, the weather's bad. There are many soldiers who are still reluctant to embrace the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, to some extent, that will change as the war continues. Um, but I know desertion rates were particularly high at that point in time. It, you know, as John said, I know in the A and B, oftentimes some of the worst rates of desertion occur after at least the two northern invasions, um, Antietam and then uh, Gettysburg, in which they were unsuccessful. So in October of 62 and then um, in August of 63, which is precludes this discussion, obviously, in winter, desertion rates were high. I don't know in the A and B necessarily the desertion rates were higher during the winter. I know in the AOP, though, there is that really famous example of the winter of 63, but I don't know if any of you all have anything further to say. Yeah, I think the winter of 63 um, was the highest for the Army of the Potomac, and then the Army of Northern Virginia in the winter of 65, maybe not with Virginian soldiers, but after Sherman takes Savannah at Christmas, right? Um, a lot of those men are saying, or a lot of those families are writing to their men um, that we're starving, right? We're starving um, and we want you to come home. And so Lee's army in the winter of 65 is what is starting to crumble apart. Well, I don't know if there's much pattern with the Army of Northern Virginia. I mean, of course, you know, in the final stages of the war, you're starting to get more desertion. I don't really, I have not quite seen a seasonal real difference yet. I mean, for the 8th Virginia, for example, their highest desertion rate is on the eve of Antietam, most because they're marching through Loudoun to get to Maryland. Uh, so that's where you see the highest desertion rate within that regimen. Uh, and you do see furloughs come up and re regular requests for furloughs, uh, but that really changes per per season and per, per each winter is quite different uh, for them. I don't know how the situation allows, but I haven't seen much with the Army of Northern Virginia that would say it's uh, definitely higher in the winter. Yeah, I agree, Joe. I think, you know, from, you know, I think it's desertion is tied much more to the outcome of a battle or a campaign. Mm. You know, I think about Early's Army in the Valley, 
you know, there's there's a much higher rate of desertion after the Battle of Fisher's Hill than there is that winter of 64, 65. And, you know, for federal soldiers, you know, in, in this part of Virginia, I really don't see, a, you know, a huge uptick in desertion. And I, I think one of the challenges is, is geographic proximity. You know, if you're from Clark County, Virginia, and you're in Augusta County, it's much easier to, to desert than it is for somebody from the 8th Vermont if you're in Winchester to desert. So I think that probably figures into the decision. Yeah, I think absolutely. And desertion itself has different levels of it. I mean, there's some who are intending to leave and they're not coming back. There's others who leave because they couldn't get permission. And the you know officer response I, you know, is quite different. Uh, you know, John, in your point, I mean, for like Elijah White, his troops were in the Shenandoah in the beginning of the winter from 64 and then 1865. There's really no options for him really just to let it basically slide that a lot are going home because they're so local to where their families are. Uh, they're not deserting to the point of giving up on the war, but it's really just more of an understanding of really what you know they can control and what they can control that some are going to go home and they will be back for the spring campaign. But there had to be some leniency uh, in terms of allowing it to happen. And if I could for a second, I want to go back to a point that John brought up about meals. Um, and to me, you know, reading diaries in particular, I really don't see soldiers talk a lot about about their meals until you get to Christmas time. Hmm. And, and there really is, you know, this this emphasis on the meals and how overjoyed they are. Right. Um, there's one Confederate soldier served an artillery battery from Stanton, Virginia. The only thing he wrote in his diary on Christmas Day, 1864, was the menu. You know, all the things that that local relief societies had sent to his unit to eat. Um, and I think this this time also is, is really a moment kind of, of of reflection and kind of, you know, think about the simpler things in life. So I've, I've really noticed that. I don't know if any of you have either, but I mean, soldiers are always talking about the weather and all this kind of stuff, understandably, because they live in it. They, you know, affects their daily lives. But really, when you get to that holiday season, that's when they're really writing, you know, I've eaten ham and beans and bread and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I have a quote uh, from James Graham. And every year during Christmas, prior to Christmas, he writes home to his family and requests a box. And on this one year, I have the list. He asks for a turkey, some chickens, butter, vegetables, sorghum, apples, a big cake, some flapjacks, a pound or two of sugar, a few eggs, two or three balls of brandy. I want to have a regular good time at Christmas. And, um, you know, what's interesting is, and then I'll, I'll turn it back to you all, um, you, you see the elite from the Confederate Army, distinct class differences emerge throughout the conflict, but in the winter months, they become most apparent. There's some really interesting archaeology of winter quarters that, that shows the spiritual hierarchies of the antebellum era are reflected in the material conditions on the ground. And officers' quarters often, of course, this is probably obvious, but nonetheless, had just a lot better things, uh, chinaware, glassware. And then, um, you know, I have, a, I, because of these presentations I've done in the past, I have a whole litany of primary source evidence from either officers or soldiers talking about Christmas time. And most soldiers simply say the day passed with no fanfare, it was dreary, it was cold. The guy I just referenced came from a pretty well-to-do family. He himself wasn't an officer, but he came from you know a pretty wealthy um, 
background. And so they were able to elevate this holiday experience in, in, in ways that reflected, again, their antebellum lifestyle. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. You know, soldiers generally sort of complain about meals off and on, but they don't create lists of what they're going to consume or what they're asking for like they do during the holidays. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point, John, and bring it up. I mean, I always made the connection with winter, but especially true with Christmas. And Jim, you know, Jim, what you're just saying, the holidays, especially with inequality about the type of soldiers, I mean, those who have more affluent families that can send them things, you know, they're much more stationary now, so they have access if their families can send them items. Uh, William Berkeley, for example, who I've referenced previously, uh, from a wealthy family, I mean, he's regularly in the winter asking his wife, uh, to send him certain things if she can uh, do so. And especially along Christmas, uh, you do see it much more specific about what he's talking about in his letters back and forth and ask having people come dine with him and the response that officers gave. I mean, just from Christmas, reflecting back on it on December 1864, talking about the cabbage and the cabbage pudding and the plum pudding, about the rave reactions that they were getting and how excitement it was. That's a change of pace and really kind of break from the norm that they can get some of these things. But of course, again, it's not an equal playing field about who can get access to certain foods sent from them that weren't being rationed out. I think if I may, going back to the earlier question about furloughs, I think this ties into a broader question that I wanted to pose. And um, there's at least two bigger points I wanna get at, but here's one of the two. And um, I'll, I'll do it through a primary source. And so Charles Bill Biddlecombe, um, whose uh, letters are in a book called uh, No Freedom Shrieker. It's, it's, it's quite good. Um, and Pete's probably referenced that, John. If you, yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yep. Um, Billicum has this, this, this great letter that he writes home right around Christmas. And he says, um, basically, thank you for the socks. I got them. Um, he wishes his family Merry Christmas. And he says, basically, I wish I was home. Such is not the fate. And I will do my best to enjoy myself as I can here. So I, I wanted you know, the panel to, to, to talk a little bit about then those tensions between the home front and the front lines, especially during the winter months in particular, but Christmas, or sorry, the winter months more broadly, but, but Christmas in particular. And, and you know, I know each of you can, can bring a certain perspective, Jonathan, with your work on um, Union troops within um, the Shenandoah Valley um, and, and Joe over in, in Loudoun and beyond. So again, just sort of a broad reflection on how soldiers are processing this distance and, and how people on the home front are experiencing the wearing months conversely. Uh, I can go first. Um, so yeah, I, I think that going back to, to Lauren's point she made earlier um, in the session, I think that soldiers are, are very reflective. I think, you know, I see a lot of this sort of melancholy and sadness, um, but I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's what you make of the situation. So there are soldiers who are melancholy. There are soldiers who are, who are trying to make the best of it. Um, I think there are some soldiers who are angry. And I think we see this not only in the winter months, but throughout that they feel their family isn't keeping in contact with them enough. Um, you know, I think about Robert Milroy's letters to his wife back in Rensselaer, Indiana. He's absolutely furious with her um, in January and February of 1863. You know, I'm writing you daily um, and you're not writing me back. You know, and, it, and I think it's I think we can understand this. We think about if we send someone an email or a text and you expect an instantaneous response and you don't get one, you get enraged. And 
you know, I think what some of the soldiers aren't realizing is the, the pace of the mail and all this kind of stuff and the difficulties in getting that mail delivered. So, yeah, it, it's certainly, I think it's heightened that these soldiers, whether they're generals or privates, they want to feel that sense of connection with family at home. And when they can't, they get increasingly frustrated, um, particularly during the holiday and winter months. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Lauren has several examples from her research with that. Uh, but I think you also see very much an awareness of, of camaraderie about the situation. For the 8th Virginia, when they're in the trenches around Petersburg, the other regiments within their brigade are aware that Loudon gets disconnected from being able to send letters back and forth. Uh, the 8th Virginia even gets sympathy from the other regiments where they, you know, out of sympathy, give them some of their food as almost a way to help console them understanding that Loudon is going through the burning raid and that disconnect for the soldiers. So there is a, a brief uh, you know, lack of communication and intelligence and correspondence coming back to them. So you see other regiments uh, very attuned to that. And that shows the importance that soldiers all have a common understanding about if they think they're there for their families and how much that is a motivating factor. Uh, when that gets taken away and the uncertainty of what's going on at home, uh, it's certainly then you kind of see them bind together. We've talked a little bit, of, uh, well, a lot about these huts and and setting these camps up and the different kinds of uh, the environment that would have been made different by being in these stagnant positions and such. But Jonathan pointed out that uh, you don't see that a lot in the Shenandoah. It's it's a different way, and this is something that uh, a lot of historians we get in the trap of, we believe that if it was this way in this part of Virginia, it had to be the same way in this part of Virginia, as far as campaigning or winter quarters or whatever it may be. And, and Jonathan, I'd like to ask you about that uh, point because what we think of these larger camps, uh, you know, that the, that both armies had put up to stay stagnant for a while, but in your area of, of the world, it seemed like they were, they were moving, uh, a little bit more so than other parts of Virginia. So you don't have maybe these stagnant camps as much. What would have been different for those soldiers than those maybe in the Army of the Potomac on the other side of the mountain range even? Uh, how, would, how would life have been different for both armies in the Shenandoah? Is that being moving around during these winter months and trying to forage and other things? Yeah, and I, I think you're, you're right. So as the, I think as the war progresses, um, you know, if you're looking at the early part of the conflict in the valley, I think those those winter camps are much more, you know, stationary. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the winter of 64, 65, so when, when the army of the Shenandoah is in the valley, Sheridan's command, this is the largest Union force ever assembled. And again, it, it doesn't compare numerically to the Army of the Potomac. It's, it's less than half the size of the Army of the Potomac. But they are moving quite frequently. So, you know, you think about the the camp that I mentioned earlier, Camp Russell, you know, they're only in that camp for about two and a half, three weeks. And they moved to Camp Sheridan north of Winchester. And then therefore, that's their their longest stint where they're there for, you know, a few months. Um, but there is this, this dynamic again, where they're moving because the, you know, they have to have the, the, the wood and the fencing and, and the stuff to sustain them. Because, you know, go back to, to Jim's point about Megan Kate Nelson's idea that it takes, you know, what, 10 acres 
for one fire per year. So it's, I mean, it's pretty dramatic, the amount of resources they have to use. But also if you look at, you know, let's say winter of, of 63, these guys are, are moving out in all different directions because there are Confederates, you know, who are around and they're trying to maintain security. So they really don't have a sedentary camp because they're, they're kind of still an active campaign. Um, I mean, Milroy's command is sending out, you know, regular um, forays into Clark County, into Warren County, into Shenandoah County on a daily basis, not only to maintain security, but to, you know, announce the good news of emancipation to the enslaved people in the valley. So I think that's that's certainly something that accounts for the the differences. Yeah, and one point, especially with the idea of what it means on the landscape, for the Union Army, who's uh, in winter of 65 in Lovettsville, which is just south of the Potomac River, uh, you see that weigh heavily on the local population, who are in a lot of ways unionist in that part of Loudoun County. And you see almost a strategy about how, how do you survive? I mean, for these residents, the burning raid a month prior really wiped out barns, uh, huge amounts of livestock were taken uh, by Sheridan's troops coming through Loudoun. But then when you had multiple regiments in Lovettsville, not just building the huts, but then, as you mentioned, the idea of firewood, uh, there's not malice by the civilians who support the Union cause and some of them frustrated by the burning rate. Also like the idea that hopefully that means Mosby's troops won't be around quite so much. Uh, but you even see them proactively bring firewood to the New York regiments to try to prevent them from then going out and taking their fences. It's a largely pastoral area with farmland. There's only a limited amount of wood they can use when you're building huts for thousands of soldiers then who need fire for a particularly harsh winter that it was in early 1865. It's often talked about how, how much snow there was and how brutal the winter was for this area. Uh, you see civilians trying to figure out strategically how do they survive when they know that the Union Army can easily go on foraging uh, expeditions so for them to try to save their, their fences and other parts of their homes, they practically are bringing firewood to the regiment. Um, I wanted to pivot and, and get back to Lauren's work. And I think one of the things that's so interesting um, is what you reveal about these very famous instances in which opposing picket lines during the winter months are going to interact. And so can you set this up for us and talk just broadly about, you know, what even are picket posts and then maybe a bit of the mythology and then some of the realities that you um, uncovered? Because, again, these there's some great winter stories intertwined with this narrative. Yeah, definitely. I think um, a lot of what Joe and Jonathan were saying, um, the importance of firewood, um, frustrations, uh, Jonathan, I, I'm glad you said that because some letters like I would open and you know, a man would say, where are my socks? And I'm like, whew, right? Like you could feel their frustration. Um, and so a lot of ways that I think um, men often reach their limits in some, some instances was the order to go on a 24 hour shift of picket duty. And so um, in the winter of 62, 63, um, the armies of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac straddled the Rappahannock River. And so to be on picket duty for 24 hours without sleep, exposed to the elements and kind of even further away from the camp that kind of insulates you because um, 
I'm sure many of you have heard the stories. There was snowball fights and baseball, you know, and card playing. And so a lot of what remedied the cold and the, the boredom was your, you know, your near comrades. But when you're on picket duty, not so much. And so um, what we see in the winter of 62-63 is men um, exchanging coffee and tobacco or exchanging coffee union um, coffee for Confederate tobacco and then um, newspapers from the other sides so that men could get um, a little, you know, caffeine, um, a little tobacco, get that little high, but then also keep warm and have something to read. And especially information that is so important that comes from the enemy's papers. It's not these circulating camp rumors. And so because the Rappahannock River is rather deep in most places, men would actually construct small boats to kind of put, put the loot, put the package on the boat and then push it across the Rappahannock. And um, men eventually would say that they look forward to pick a duty in order to have access to these commodities and kind of going back to what we were saying before and even tying it back to furloughs, a lot of the officers got furloughs before they would um, and seeing what their officers were eating and where their officers were living. It really, there was a disconnect, especially for the Army of the Potomac that, you know, just went through this horrific kind of loss um, and that distrust coupled with exposure to the elements, the last thing you would think they would rely on for reprieve would be the enemy. And that's kind of what happens. And then two years later, we see the same thing happen at Petersburg with these armies, but it's much different because when men have to come out or, you know, come out of their little huts and go to picket duty on the front lines at Petersburg, they're given orders to um, keep up a fire, right? Or, or have kind of a stricter guard than they had in 62, 63, where on picket duty, they were just basically like, we're in winter quarters. If we see anything unusual, we report it, but otherwise we're just standing here. So they felt relatively safe. But in 64, 65, that's not so much the case. And so um, men are going to negotiate um, ceasefires with one another, Union and Confederate soldiers, because at this point, um, they want to survive the day, right? And they ultimately want to survive the war. And so fraternization, instead of kind of being a way to get commodities, actually becomes a, a way to preserve life um, and a way of self-preservation. And many times you would see, um, going back to the idea of firewood, is Union or Confederates would see their enemy in between the lines cutting wood and they wouldn't fire at them. Um, they would say, go ahead and do it. We need to do it too, because they knew how important that wood was for um, cooking and for warmth and for shelter. And so you would think it's counterintuitive or counterproductive um, to let your enemy get this wood or to say that you wouldn't fire on them. Um, but I really think at this point, especially during the winter months, um, it's kind of seen as a timeout and these men can compartmentalize um, between fighting and kind of surviving um, when we get to the last winter of the war. So both of both winters, we see fraternization, but a little different circumstances in terms of being kind of in fully winter encampment versus during the siege at Petersburg. I think too, you know, it's, it's important to highlight that although the armies have, you know, winter clothing, um, so they, they adapt to the elements somewhat that just how miserable these conditions can be. And and again, I, I have a quote from Biddlecombe coming off of a picket uh, post in the area of Kelly's Ford in late December 63. 
mud, mud over the shoe, above the knee, and still rain. Rain is enough to start another Noah's flood. And and again, just talking about men who are not only dealing with this, the potentially psychological traumas of their combat experiences, but then just the 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 physically how physically difficult things like picket post are. And and I think it's right of you to highlight, like we tend to you know, immortalize that that famous snowball fight that breaks out um, in the A and B, and I think it's the winter of 62, 63. Um, the soldiers were nestled um, by their uh, fires in these winter quarters. But I mean, these armies still, in many cases, are near belligerent groups. And, and so it's necessary for men to go out under all sorts of different weather conditions and continue to do the work of soldiering. And, and, and picket posts in particular, as you said, is the rotation is 24 hours on. So you're you're out on for 24 hours and then you rotate off? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and I'm not sure, like it would depend sometimes like 24 hours on and then not necessarily 24 hours off and then you go back. There might be a few days in between. Sure, okay. But again, that, that's probably just heightening some of the, the difficulty the men are having during these winter months, separation from families, processing the, the experiences of the campaign season, and then just continuing the monotonous duties of soldiering under very difficult conditions. And Lauren, I have a question for you. I mean, for some of these soldiers, we think brother versus brother, but this is totally different worlds for some of these individuals. Like some of the soldiers from Mississippi have a snowball fight the winter of you know 61 and the 62 when they're in Northern Virginia up here. I mean, these people aren't seeing snow where they're from. Are you seeing kind of a marvel at the kind of different changes of climate that surprises them? Yeah, I think so, definitely. Just like when we talk about New Yorkers going to Mississippi with Grant's army, right? <laughs> so um, yeah, definitely. I think um, Confederate soldiers are a bit underprepared, right? For the clothing they have. And we kind of see how um, that is really gonna play Confederates throughout the winter. Um, but even some of our, you know, strongest kind of New Englanders are struggling um, with the Virginia heat. And I know that's a whole nother season. So maybe this summer we can do a summer, <laughs> a summer season episode. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and I think that, I don't know if you've seen it or not, or if anybody's seen it, but yeah, men from Mississippi not being, you know, ready for that and seeing kind of um, the ailments that men get from frostbite. Um, and things like that, especially when on picket duty um, uh, on the windy Rappahannock River um, with very bare because the armies came through there. There's nothing left. Right. It's not pretty like it is today. Um, so, yeah, I think definitely that the shock is for both sides um, in the climate. John, can you quickly bring up one of the images that Lauren provided of the soldier on picket post? And it, there's the one where he's like windswept and you could just, yes. yeah, great. Yes, I can bring that up for you. And I know Ken No has his new book that just came out on climate and the Civil War. I'm excited to read that. Yes. Okay. This one was the one you asked for, Jim? Yeah, perfect. Um, again, just to sort of, I guess, visualize what, what Lauren had had um, had said, and and you can get some sense. You know, seeking any sort of protection in this case, the the firing mechanism of the weapon is underneath his armpit to protect it from the damp. He's sheltered against the tree. He has on his greatcoat, but his hands are tucked into his pockets. 
and um, it looks like a pretty severe gale. So you can just get some sense of how, again, miserable conditions can be. And I imagine, and Lauren, correct me, if you're in close proximity to the enemy, if they were, I guess, static posts where there's informal truths, they could probably have fires. But if they were hot zones, they probably couldn't have fires, right? Because then you would know where the location of your foe was. Right, yeah. A lot of times on picket duty on the Rappahannock, they weren't allowed to have fires. Um, and then at Petersburg, um, not allowed to have fires either. So yeah, that's a great point that um, they didn't want to show where they were or kind of illuminate how many men were there. That was kind of another thing, like how many men are piling up, right? So they didn't want to illuminate kind of what that area looked like. And so yeah, no fires during picket duty. Hmm. This brings up uh, one other thing that came up in the comments a little while ago, and uh, we've we've touched on just a little bit, but it was involving those letters home and such, where some people were asking for food and certain foodstuffs and everything like that. Uh, but Jonathan, they they often also talk about uh, please send me more socks or please send me something else that's clothing wise. And uh, someone brought up in the comments earlier, uh, and I'm sorry I don't have it to bring up here, but about what are these men wearing? at this time because they're not wearing the same thing they're, they're wearing more layers hopefully but you start to see this more in letters where like hey send me a, a scarf or send me uh, socks or something else so what are they supposed to be getting and what are some of these men actually wearing while they're uh either campaigning during winter months or they're in a stagnant position jonathan you want to take that one yeah, I can. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you have, I mean, I think, you know, thinking about that, that image that you just put up that Lauren shared, um, I mean, you've got soldiers in great coats. Um, but yeah, I mean, what the, the soldiers are being issued in terms of, of wool socks and um, great coats and those types of things, that's, that's not sufficient. So they need scarves, they need gloves, they need you know, sufficient under underwear and, and those types of things that are that are going to protect them from the cold. Um, and and if you don't have those things, it can certainly be very paralyzing. I think about, um, you know, Jackson's army when it was on its on its way to Romney in in the early part of the conflict and how, you know, these guys had had all their winter clothing because it was warm when they left Winchester. Um, left them on the supply wagons behind and the terrible winter storm came up and, and they were paralyzed guys were getting, you know, frostbite and frozen and all kinds of things. So yeah, I, I don't think that the, the clothing, you know, the great coats, the, the socks, I, I don't think it was sufficient, you know, to keep these guys warm when they were out there on that 24 hour picket post, they couldn't have a fire and those types of things. And I, I think if I could add on to that, what I, you know, pretty quickly discovered when I was working on my my first book, and I dealt primarily with, you know, relatively wealthy, literate white Southerners. So these are again people who had means, and that they don't represent the human ranks. They don't represent those who are transitionally literate. But among that socioeconomic class, they became quite good at adapting to the seasons. And so I found numerous instances in which they would send an enslaved person back home and there they would, would request trunks with blankets 
they would request in, in very specific terms, my double soled boots that are in the back room. Hmm. And, or I'll give you these boots to take to, to Joe Smith, who in turn is going to put a double sole on them. And um, then they would begin to create these really elaborate requests of their wives, their sisters, and their mothers saying that, you know, make me up a great coat, this, this lined in wool, and make sure that um, often, again, using enslaved labor, that, um, you know, this be transported back. And, and so, you know, especially in the Confederate armies where the supply system is adequate at points and, and really good at other points, um, but and sometimes still not providing the types of comforts the soldiers demand, they become incredibly good at navigating that. Then again, it's skewed by class. Um, I think where we see some differences are among Union troops, um, where I think the federal government just had a much more larger industrial apparatus and had the means in many instances of not only creating more uniformity, but simply of su supplying them in the fields of exactly what they need. But again, just going back to Lauren's image, and we don't actually have to bring it up again, but you know, you can you can look at that in your mind's eye, and it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, I I, I went out running this morning. It was 25 degrees, and I had all my you know weather winter weather gear. But I mean, it's still cold. The wind's still biting me in the face, and my hands are still cold despite the gloves. And that's a you know an hour out there. Imagine eight hours, nine hours, a 24-hour stint. So no matter how much government supplied or, or privately supplied goods that you have, you are simply enduring a very different type of, of, of conditions than one would think. Because I think immediately when we think about Civil War soldier, our mind's eye goes to the long road marches in the summer with the, the, the you know, the heat, the sun being down on them, the dirt kicking up and, and men stripping off their clothing, not trying to get more layers. And I think that's what's so interesting about this topic is that it's just, again, as I said at the beginning, it's an entirely different face of the conflict. And while soldiers adapt to it in very innovative and creative ways, that is certainly skewed by class. And even if they are in the most comfortable circumstances possible, they're still living outdoors. They're still living outdoors for extended periods of time and men in some ways revel in that and they write home very in, in prideful ways about how well they've become adapted to the elements and in, in, in life outdoors especially if, if they had a more professional pursuit in their pre-war lives but there's still a, an immense amount of strain and you know if you want to really get some sense of that look at the post-war records of a lot of these vets a lot of them are suffering from a lot of ailments rheumatism, arthritis, um, men who are, they're just innervated. A lot of men die between the period of 1868 and 1875, partially because of wounds, but partially because their bodies have just been so worn out from four difficult years of, of outdoor living and privation. And, and these, again, in many instances, aren't men who were in prisons, who aren't you know suffering from, from catastrophic wounds. It's simply the accumulation of, of what this does to the body. And it, it, it's, it's a great deal of hardship. Is there a final audience question, John? I know we're up on our hour, and I, I have at least one thing to sort of tie us home. And if not, it's totally fine. Or uh, you, can, you can bring it home for now. I'm actually uh, posting Lauren's book, a link to that from the Press. So you can go right ahead. Okay. Um, 
Well, to kind of bring it home then, I just wanted you all to give our audience a recommendation. And, and so be it um, a primary source or a secondary source, and I know you've referenced a couple of works here, but if audiences want to learn more about um, the experience of, of, of soldiers or civilians during the winter months, what is one of your recommendations, your, your go-to either primary or secondary sources that our audience could readily get? And Lauren, we'll start, start with you if it's okay. Oh my gosh, I was typing in the private chat the oh. discount code for the book, so I missed part oh. of your question. So I'm the that, bad student. No, 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 I no, no, no. That's, sure. that's, we'll start with that. Why don't, you, why don't you deliver that, John and Lauren, because that's important information. <laughs> I'm putting it in the code. I'm putting the code in right now, Lauren. <laughs> okay, so Lauren's provided uh, a 40% off discount code, which is extraordinarily kind. Yeah. And I'll, we'll start with you, Jonathan. So what would you recommend as a primary or secondary source that's readily available for someone who wanted to learn more about soldiers or civilians during the winter months? Well, it has to be the book that um, Lauren mentioned. I reviewed it, um, Ken Noe's new book, The Howling Storm. I mean, it's just a phenomenal tour de force. Um, I think it's an instant classic. I mean, it is a, I don't know if anyone else has read it on this panel yet, but I mean, it's just remarkable the amount of detail um, for essentially all armies at all points in the conflict, uh, looking at the impact of the natural environment on, on soldiers and how they cope with it and and how weather impacted campaigns and all. I, I can't think of a, of a better study that people can get their hands on right now than that. I mean, you know, some of the, the great collections of letters that are out there, you know, they have all these types of things. But if if, if some of the viewers are looking for just, you know, one book, I would have to recommend Ken Knows The Howling Storm. Joe, how about you, if you don't mind? Yeah, for a broader study, I mean, I can't really go wrong with that one. For more regional, uh, for the Northern Virginia one, uh, Between Reb and Yank is the most detailed account you can get. Uh, for getting into things that you often don't think about in terms of civilians and what the winter means economically on them, uh, with both sides passing through for four different winters and irregular soldiers, and what that means for a population somewhat divided too about loyalties. Uh, there's no more detailed account for Northern Virginia than that. Uh, but of course there's several good uh, ones, particularly for 1862, 1863, uh, the Dare Mark campaign. There's a, a few you know, studies that you know, are phenomenal for kind of getting a little bit outside of just particular campaigns. Lauren. Okay, I'm ready now. I felt like such a bad student. <laughs> I know. Um, I know. <laughs> Um, I really like, um, just, I'll take the approach of, um, a soldier's edited letters, um, is Hard Marching Every Day by Private Wilbur Fisk. Um, he really, uh, tells it like it is. And somebody asked me once if, um, I could ask Civil War soldiers anything, what would it be? I would be like, tell me how it really is. Like, don't protect the people at home. Um, don't try to show off, like, just really tell me what you're thinking. And I really feel that when I, um, read hard marching every day, because I feel like he's writing his letters, um, to himself, it's his diary. And so he has no one, nothing to prove, nothing to impress. And, um, he's in the, I want to say he's a Vermont soldier. I want to say the fifth Vermont, but I might misquote that. But Wilbur, Private Wilbur Fisk, Hard Marching Every Day, one of my favorites of um, an edited volume of a soldier. 
John, I'm going to call on you next. Do you have a, maybe, you know, I'm kind of curious too, you're interested in, in logistics and we did that presentation together. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. When was that? Now wow. time's that was a problem. It was like over a year ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was over a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, felt like three months ago, yeah. but yeah. anything that um, you can offer. Well, I'm, I'm not going to go logistics. I'm going to go environmental. Okay. Uh, well, well, first I have to give a shout out to hard tech and coffee because yeah, I, I have it tattooed on me. So I gotta give a shout out to hard tech and coffee, uh, for that. But then, uh, uh, Tim Silver and Judkin Browning's book on environmental history of the civil war. Uh, they touch on some of the effects of, uh, the winter time campaigning or being in camp. And also, uh, I believe they touch on deforestation and, and yeah. stuff like that as well in, in their great book. And I really enjoyed that. And I, and I'm not saying that because we interviewed them uh, on my on my channel, but I did. I'm getting more into the environmental impact of the war, and I think that really takes shape during the winter months as well, as we've said with deforestation and then the junk left behind by the troops after they leave their winter quarters in whichever way that may be is fascinating to me. So I give a shout out to to their book. And let me reiterate, Hard Dog and Coffee, um, you know Billings. I, I didn't quote it, but Billings has quite um, detailed information about the construction of winter hunt, huts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he goes into a lot of detail about the experience of soldiering during the winter, and it's just, it's really good. Um, so, yes. wonderful. Um, any final comments, statements? Okay. I always yeah. like to ask. Yeah. Um, my class kind of stares at me too, and I always do. Um, <laughs> Well, um, I think, you know, I deeply appreciate this this evening. It was very enlightening. Hopefully it warmed everyone up during the cold winter months, <laughs> uh, the bad times. Um, but, but I do appreciate it. And again, I think this is one of the more understudied aspects of the conflict. And um, I, I think for the audience out there, if you do become interested in it, you're going to become very attuned to it. And then you're going to see it all the time. The soldiers talk a lot about these things. It's just something that historians didn't always observe. And, and and so next time you're going through a, a group of printed primary sources, or even if you're going out into the archives, take a careful look at the letters that are, are written between November and March. They're incredibly interesting. And I would encourage you in particular to look at the ones during December and early January, no matter what you, what year the war it is. They're, um, they're quite compelling. Yeah. John, thank you very much, as always, um, for hosting us here and for posing questions as we go along. And um, yeah. yeah thank you thank you everyone for for this fine evening here of history this is great this is a topic which is so underappreciated or under uh undervalued by some people and sometimes glossed over as we said at the beginning by others and i think this is a very eye-opening experience to get uh peak a lot of people's curiosity and uh we've been up until five minutes ago we were at a consistent 100 people watching so that's been great uh, so we've had a lot of great stuff happening. If we didn't get to your question, I apologize, but I'm sure that those of us will be going back through the, the chats throughout the weekend probably and, and answering. I know Jim and I both like to do that from time to time, go back through and, and make sure that your question is answered or we can supply you with whatever you uh, need as far as that's concerned. Uh, I want to give a, a shout out to our co-host one more time, the Loud Museum, uh, George Tyler Moore Center, and to Civil War Trails for uh, sharing this out and spreading the love of history. And that's that's an amazing thing. But I appreciate everyone who's been on the panel. Thank you so much to all of you. 
And thank you everyone who's been watching on Facebook and YouTube. It's been a great evening. Stay safe out there. Stay warm, especially after this talk. Now I'm getting a little chilly. Uh, and I'm, I need I need Joe's fire down there. We got to get Jim out of the basement. I know. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to turn, my, I'm gonna turn my space heater on after we're done here. Yeah. So thank you again, everyone, for watching. Please take care of yourselves. See you next time. <laughs>